Um, I have a confession to make. I do not like this sermon. <laughs> um, I think about five times over the course of the past two days, I, I looked at everything I had written, hit select all, delete, and started over. Um, so this is a very rough draft. In fact, I, I'm so used to writing academic papers, I thought about asking Father Martin for an extension. Uh, <laughs> But I, I assumed he would say no. Um, I think the, the problem, the problem was, or the problem is, that I, I care about this text a lot. I mean, I, I love all, as I talked about last week, I love all of the gospel passages. Um, I love all the texts that tell me about Jesus. But this this text in particular has extreme significance for me because I think it sums up. Um, my theology, and I believe the theology of the New Testament, in, in a, a grand, sort of summarizing way. And it, it always felt, as I was trying to write, um, bigger and more significant than anything that I was actually writing. Everything that I, I prepared felt, felt insufficient. Um, so let's, let's just go ahead and turn to the text. It's Matthew 22, 34 to 36, um, and just see where we, where we end up. Our passage this morning comes as somewhat of a climax to um, a very intriguing scene in Matthew's gospel. Jesus has entered the city um, in his triumphal entry, and he's begun to be attacked by the Jewish leaders through a series of questions. Um, The first question we looked at, at last week, tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? The second question, which we, we don't cover in the lectionary at this point, um, comes from the Sadducees, and it's a question about resurrection. The question comes after a story about a woman who has had seven husbands, all of whom died before she did. And the Sadducees ask, in the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? The first question is about Caesar and lordship. The second question is about resurrection. And the third, as we heard today, is about the law. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? The fourth question, and this is not asked of Jesus, but instead Jesus himself becomes the questioner. Going on the offensive and turning the tables on his adversaries is about the Messiah. He asks, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The four questions, therefore, that comprise this section of Matthew's gospel deal with four very powerful themes. Lordship, resurrection, law, messiahship. Who is Lord, Jesus or Caesar? Does life end in death? Or is God's plan for the renewal of all creation, does that include the resurrection of our dead bodies? How does one fulfill Torah? What does it mean to be the Messiah, the son of David? These are the questions now coming to the surface, now sort of coming to a head as the moment of Jesus' death ebbs closer and closer with each passing day. But of all these marvelous and powerful themes, what interests me the most this morning 
is Jesus' quotation of Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. This is, in my opinion, one of the deepest and most profound images in all of the New Testament. So much of my own theology, and I believe the theology of the entire New Testament, is encapsulated and summed up in this quotation. Yahweh said to Adonai, Sit at my right hand until I have put your enemies under your feet. The New Testament authors felt the power of this psalm. Psalm 110 was for them a powerful summary of who Jesus was, where Jesus was, and what we are to be doing in this world while we await his second coming. So to the first point, the apostles are interested in this psalm because Jesus himself is interested in this psalm. At least twice in the Synoptic Gospels, Jesus directly addresses the question of Messiahship. The first is our text this morning. What do you think about the Messiah? If he is the son of David, then why does David call him Lord? And he quotes Psalm 110 where David calls the Messiah Lord. What Jesus says is that this psalm claims something about the Messiah that was not understood by his contemporaries. Psalm 110, according to Jesus, claims that the Messiah is more than the earthly human son of David, or else he would not have called him Adonai. He would not have called him my Lord. According to Psalm 110, the Messiah is more than just a mere man. He is Adonai. He is our Lord. The second time Jesus addresses the question of Messiahship is when he is on trial before the high priest. The high priest said to him, tell us. If you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus replied, you have said so. But I tell you, you from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. Psalm 110. And coming on the clouds of heaven. Daniel 7. Here Jesus quotes and blends together allusions from Psalm 110 and Daniel 7. Two Two texts that I believe more than any others, defined for Jesus his own vocation and identity. Jesus knew that he had been called to be Israel's Messiah, but he also knew what that meant. According to Psalm 110, it meant to be more than human, more than merely David's son. According to Daniel 7, it meant to be the one upon whom all the tribulation of the world was going to crush the one who would experience all of the world's fury and would rise victorious. When this is infused, this language of Daniel 7 and Psalm 110, a full and robust picture of Jesus' own self-understanding begins to emerge. So that was who Jesus was according to Psalm 110. But what about where he was? Over and over again, often in direct reference to the psalm, the New Testament authors affirm that the Jesus whom they had seen ascend into heaven had taken his place at the right hand of God. And this is particularly interesting because none of the ascension texts actually say that he sat down at God's right hand. But they believed he had because of this psalm. 
So Peter quotes Psalm 110 in Acts during his great Pentecost sermon to say that the outpouring of the Spirit is a direct result of Jesus' enthronement as the world's true Lord at the right hand of God. Paul quotes this, this psalm in 1 Corinthians 15 as he makes his profound argument for the power of Jesus' resurrection. The author of Hebrews quotes it again and again to say that when Jesus sat down at the right hand of God, he sat down not just as king and Lord, but as priest. As the one through whom atonement had been made for the whole world by means of his own self-sacrifice. So when Jesus was asked about the Messiah, he turned to Psalm 110. His followers quoted this text over and over Um, In fact, this is the most quoted Old Testament chapter in the New Testament. I don't think I said that right. Um, this, This chapter of the Old Testament is quoted in the New Testament more than any other chapter. This language is so significant, it even makes its way into our creed. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. I have said this before in a sermon, so I apologize for rehashing old material. But the entirety of our lives, if we are to use the language of the creed, is lived within the clause, He is seated at the right hand of the Father. Everything that you and I will ever do, should the Lord tarry further, will be done while Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father, and in the expectation that He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. These are... I believe, two of the central pillars of our lives and of New Testament theology. And in fact, they can both be shown to have been some of the earliest beliefs of the first Christians. As I already said, at Pentecost, the sort of very first Christian sermon, Peter is quoting Psalm 110 to say that not only was Jesus the risen Lord, but he was the ascended Lord who now sits at God's right hand as the world's true and only Lord. And for the second coming, one of the more surprising aspects of this doctrine and how we receive it in the New Testament is that the New Testament uses this word Maranatha. And it uses the word even in context where the people didn't speak Aramaic. The expression is an Aramaic expression. So, for example, in 1 Corinthians 16, Paul writes in Greek, to a Gentile audience who presumably knows no Aramaic, and yet he writes, using Greek letters, the words, Maranatha, come, Lord. The only way to account for this, it seems, is to say that the belief, actually, the prayer and the hope that Jesus would return, that the second coming would take place, was so strong and so early that this particular Aramaic form of the prayer, come, Lord, come, It's stuck. It's stuck in their minds. It was so, so significant that even Gentiles who knew no Aramaic understood this phrase. They knew this word, Maranatha, come Lord. So the early church believed almost from their inception that in fulfillment of Psalm 110, when Jesus ascended into heaven, he ascended to the throne of God to sit there at God's right hand as the world's true Lord. And they also believed again from the very beginning that one day Jesus would leave his heavenly throne and come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. So this is my question. 
What happens in between? He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. What takes place in between those two clauses? The question could be asked like this. What is God doing in the world between the ascension and the second coming? My answer, and not surprisingly, um, comes from Psalm 110. God is in the process of subjecting all of the created order to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Let me say that one more time. In between the time of Jesus' heavenly enthronement and until he comes again, God is in the process of subjecting all of the created order to the lordship of Jesus Christ. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies, I have put your enemies under your feet. Paul says this too in 1 Corinthians 15, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. There is Psalm 110. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Whether we say that God is doing such and such or Jesus is doing such and such, I think is irrelevant. The end will come, Paul says. The great resurrection of humanity will come after Jesus has destroyed every rule and every authority and every power. And that great resurrection is itself the defeat of our last enemy, death. Death more powerful than every evil and every earthly lord will finally be defeated when God's true humanity rises victorious from the grave. Jesus must reign. He must sit enthroned in heaven at the right hand of God as the world's true Lord until he has put his enemies under his feet. Until he has put the entirety of the created order in subjection under himself. This is what God is doing in the world today in between the ascension and the second coming. This is what happens between he now sits and he will come again. And this is what you and I are called to be doing as well. You see, we are to be about the business of calling the entire world, and we must start with ourselves. But we are to be about the business of calling the entire created order into subjection to the lordship of Jesus Christ. If we confess that Jesus now sits at the right hand of the Father, then we must also believe that he is the world's true and only Lord, the one to whom all of creation will be called to give an account. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. 
For God has put all things in subjection under him. Every power, every ruler, every authority, every person, even death itself, God has put all of it in subjection to Jesus Christ. Jesus is Lord. So if if this is what God is doing, and this is our confession, Jesus is Lord, And how are we to do this? How are you and I to go about the business of bringing the entire world into subjection under Jesus? If we are to follow the model of Jesus, the world's true and only Lord, then we will defeat every rule, every authority, every power, and even death itself, not by force and not by violence, but by obedient, self-sacrificial love. To put it another way, we will love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength. And we will love our neighbors as ourselves. We will fulfill the law and the prophets. We will be the people that God intended humanity to be. We will, by our obedient, self-sacrificial love, announce to the worldly powers that their time is over and that their way of being human is not only flawed but destructive. We will say to every rule and every authority and every power and even to death itself that Jesus is Lord. By our love, by our unity, by our care for widows and orphans, for the poor and downcast, for the homeless and the needy, we will declare, not just with our lips, but with our very lives, that Jesus is Lord. That he now sits at the right hand of the Father and that he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. For God has put all things in subjection under him. Jesus is Lord, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. Amen.